Welcome to the People of Chattanooga podcast. I'm your host, Luke Swab. Today on the show, I have Nathan Bird. Nathan is the host of the local podcast, Chattanooga Civics. In this conversation, we get to learn about the man behind the mic, why he started the podcast, and when and where you can vote. Nathan is passionate about Chattanooga and how our local government works, and he is eager to share what he learns with everyone. He has interviewed many of the mayoral candidates, so check out his podcast to hear his interviews and learn more about the candidates before the election on March 2nd, 2021. I hope you find this conversation useful. And now, here's Nathan Bird. And we are live recording. I'm here with Nathan Bird sitting across the table in my home studio. How are you doing this morning, Nathan? Doing well. Uh, Nathan, he just started a podcast in Chattanooga called Chattanooga Civics. That's right. Um, what is that podcast about, and why did you start a podcast? Yeah, so the podcast is really trying to get people better educated and better involved in local politics. And it, it's an idea that's been floating around in my head for a long time. Um, you know, I always kind of wanted to get involved in local politics, didn't really know how. I looked around at different websites, trying to find different resources I could look at. And what I really wanted was something where I could see all of the candidates in one place. I could see all of the issues in one place. And I, I never really found anything like that. Um, and so that had been floating around in my head for a few years. And I just kind of gave up and, you know, did my best to inform myself, but didn't really have one single resource to go to. And then in 2020, like just everything, everything happened. Um, you know, we had the, we had COVID and the mask mandates and we had the Black Lives Matter protests and all these conversations about policing and just all this stuff that we were talking about on a national level, but it really, you know, the rubber hits the road at the local level. The mask mandates are done by the Hamilton County Health Department. Uh, the Black Lives Matter protests, that's a you know whole national conversation that we're having, but any real change is going to be happening at the local level because the police chief is you know named by the mayor and under the authority of the city and all that stuff. So all these local issues were kind of in the news all the time. And I was just like, you know, no one else is putting together this resource. And if no one else is going to do it, then I might as well do it. And, you know, I'm still not really claiming to be any kind of expert or anything. You know, I put on the, on my bio that I'm just, I'm just a guy with Google. And, you know, I just kind of spent some time researching and tried to compile everything in one place and went from there. So it kind of turned into interviewing all these candidates ahead of the March election. I really like that um, since it didn't already exist, you decided to take it upon yourself and do it. That's That's pretty cool. Like it's... You know, it's easy for people to wish for something to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, you took it upon yourself to do it. That's great. It's a great service. I have been listening to your podcast recently, and um, you have had some mayoral candidates on there mm -hmm. that um, I've been listening to. And I, I've actually had the, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, luxury, or I've been blessed to have also interviewed some of the same people you have. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think our style, our, our two different styles complement each other very well. Definitely. Yeah. My, my style is more who the person is as a human, mm -hmm. even so outside of politics and yours is specifically, no, what are you really going to do? What are your policies? What, why are you running for mayor, et cetera? Right. Yeah. And I've listened to your, your interviews with, um, 
with Wade and Monty and Tim and and really enjoyed them. And it, it gives a really good sense of who they are as, as people. And I think voters are interested to learn that kind of stuff. My, my podcast is more policy oriented. I'm asking a lot of questions about, you know, what their agenda is like. But but I think both sides are important and, you know, it, they complement each other, like you said. Yeah, I agree. Now, have you always been into um, politics? Uh, to some capacity. I've never been like super active, you know, on the ground. You know, I've never really campaigned for anybody or anything. But I try and keep informed and, you know, try and stay on top of things and know which way I'm going to vote and things like that. What, what's your school background? So I grew up here in town and I was homeschooled um, until eighth grade. And then in ninth grade, I went to Macaulay. Okay. And then from there, I got, a, I was super blessed both to go to Macaulay and to go to Vanderbilt on um, need-based scholarships, essentially. So I went to Vanderbilt and graduated with a degree in civil engineering. Oh, very cool. Um, do you use that degree? Yeah. So I work at a company just down the street from here, Reagan Smith Engineering, um, and we do a lot of local work. So it's been really interesting. And that's, and, and it's, it's dovetailed really well with kind of what I've been doing with the podcast, because as part of my work, as I deal a lot with like the zoning codes, um, rezoning applications. I have to make sure that whenever I design, you know, I design a lot of like parking lots and buildings and things like that. Uh, not the buildings themselves, but like the area around the buildings, so roads, sidewalks, that kind of thing. And all that stuff, it, it's all local regulations that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So that kind of set me up really well to understand a lot of these things that I'm talking about on my show. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, what's it been like to start a podcast? I mean, not many people have started them. What's it, what's it like to start a podcast? It's been, uh, it's been a lot easier than I, I thought. So I'm still, the first thing I had to do was I, I really had to get over a lot of imposter syndrome. Sure. Um, you know, thinking, especially with something as, as kind of detailed as local politics, you know, I didn't want to be the guy to step in and like step on people's toes. And I was even kind of worried that I'd be stepping on your toes a little bit until I realized like, we're really talking about two different things. You know, I didn't want to be coming in and you've had this podcast for like a year or so now. And I didn't want to come in and, you know, encroach on your turf or whatever. And oh. then I thought about it and was like, you know, I'm really trying to do something a little bit different here. But even then it was like, am I really knowledgeable enough to be talking about this well in, in all honesty um i i don't even like politics so <laughs> you, can, you have you have a free reign on that i'm interested in people right and, and once in a while uh those people run for political office right yeah so yeah, yeah. that's they happen to be politicians right right but yeah. i just like people so so i had to get i had to get over that sure and, and that's something i'm still trying to get over a lot of the time and and this idea of like it doesn't have to be perfect. Yes. You know, I really yes. have to stop myself from spending like three hours editing every episode because in my head, I want it to be perfect. And at a certain point, I'm like, if I keep doing this, I'm going to burn out. Now, do you edit the conversation? I have not edited any of the conversations except for, you know, I'll clip a little bit at the beginning and end. Sure. Um, I, the, all the conversations I've posted so far are completely unedited, just beginning to end. I do have a couple episodes and after this election, I'll be going back to this sort of style of these little 10 to 15 minute episodes, just explaining like 
So the first three that I did is like, what's the difference between the city government and the county government? Mm-hmm. That was like a little 10 minute episode. And then I did another episode on what the city council does and how they're elected and, you know, kind of the details around the city council. And then I did another one around the mayor. And it's funny because those episodes, uh, I, I bought this little handheld digital re- recorder to record the podcast because it was the cheapest thing I could find that I thought would give me good audio quality. So I sit here in my little closet. It's literally like not not quite a lot walk-in closet, but it's got all the clothes. So it's like sound, soundproofing. Yeah, sound so I'm sitting here on the floor of my closet with my little digital handheld mic recording this podcast. I'm like, this is ridiculous, <laughs> but this is what I'm going to do. And this is how it works. And especially because I've got two kids at home. So it's oh, loud. Oh, like, yeah. I go into the closet, shut the door, make sure it's all soundproofed, record my little bit, and then I go in. And the those little 10-minute episodes actually have a lot more uh, editing mm-hmm. that goes into them than goes into the interviews. The interviews, I record an intro, I record an outro, and I just paste it all together, and it's it's done. Same. That's what I do. Yeah. yeah. I, I prefer the unedited. But when you're doing a solo right. podcast, like honestly, the intro and the outro, the intro takes me... 10 times to record. Yeah. Same. I mean, it takes me a long time. And it's and like, it's, I write it out mm-hmm. at first. I was doing it, you know, in, um, spur of the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I stutter. I didn't, I didn't like what I said. Same. Um, so then I went through this whole process. Now I write it out and I dread it. Sometimes yeah. I'll, I'll record a podcast and like seven days later, I finally sit down and do the, right. Cause it's, that's almost harder than the interview. Yeah, the interview, I mean, it kind of flows back and forth. You have your questions written out. It's a little more conversational. Uh, But, you know, I'm really struggling, especially in the the explainer episodes. Mm -hmm. I'm struggling with, like, NPR voice. (laughs) And just this, like, super dull, like, listing off these facts. And I'm trying to figure out how to, like, get away from that. And I'm hoping that as I become more confident, that'll kind of ease and I'll find my own style. Um, I think you have a great podcast voice. You're, you're good. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, do you ever listen to Lex Friedman's podcast? No, I don't think I've heard of that one. Oh, he's he's very. It's very popular. Um, it used to be called the Artificial Intelligence Podcast, but um, mm-hmm. now it's Lex Friedman. That's the okay. host, and he's very self conscious of mm-hmm. his monotone voice. Is how he describes it, mm-hmm. and it is kind of monotone, but it, I it doesn't bother me. I mean. It's more about the content, I think, than the, right. the voice. Yeah. And that's, again, that's something I just had to get over and be like, you know what? No one, no one cares. Right. If they want to listen, they'll listen. How have, how have you found getting, uh, the mayoral candidates? How, how what, have you found it easy to reach out to them and convince them to be on your podcast or were they eager to, or it really varies. Um, it was funny. I had not been intending to start doing the interviews and probably until like mid January. Mm-hmm. And then, um, Tim Kelly actually reached out to me, somebody, I hadn't even recorded my first real episode. I oh, just really? recorded my introduction. Yeah. And in and my, was, int- that, was that out? Was that introduction on Apple? Yeah. Um, I had just posted it okay. literally just a couple days before I posted it. And the introduction episode just explains like what we, what we were talking about at the beginning, right. you know, all this stuff that happened this summer, this is why I'm doing this. This is what I hope to do. And I had this bit where I talk about, uh, localism and how I think like local issues are really, I mean, that's where most of the stuff we talk about 
day to day, the stuff we worry about, the stuff that impacts our lives, it's all local. Right. And so I had this bit where I talked about that and, uh, I guess one of his campaign staffers forwarded it to him and he reached out to me and was like, man, I really, this is exactly, cause that's a lot of the same stuff that he's campaigning on mm-hmm. this kind of localism. Um, and so he reached out to me and I went into his studio cause he's got a podcast for his campaign. And that kind of drove me to start this interview process a little more quickly. And so some people have been like super easy to get a hold of. Some people are super tightly scheduled. So it, it varies. It's all over the place. Yeah, that's pretty similar to what my experience is. Mm-hmm. Um, was there a little, did you have the butterflies for the the Tim Kelly podcast? I did, yeah. <laughs> he's Especially because that well was known, my first one. And he's a well-known guy, you know. Yeah. He's, yeah. And it helped too. So that, that was the first one. So that was, you know, a little bit of butterflies. I hadn't gotten enough time to, to really get my questions set the way I have now. Yeah. So it ended up being a little bit shorter than my other mayoral interviews so far. Um, yeah, definitely had the butterflies and it's helped to move in because that was right before, I mean, we just had this huge COVID spike that's starting to come back down. Um, and that was from like the whole month of December, basically. So he, he slipped in just before COVID spiked. So that was my last in-person interview and then everything else has been on zoom. And that has actually, I think that's been good for me. That helped with the, the nervousness. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's not face to face. It's yeah. a little, um, what do you think about the quality of doing a podcast over zoom versus in person? Uh, it's got pros and cons, um, Pros is the video is really easy to set up. So like I've posted all those episodes on YouTube and it's really easy to have video without any equipment. Um, So that's been a a big pro. And again, like my own nervousness, that's really helped. Um, There is, you do miss kind of a personal element when you, when you're looking through a computer screen. So, so I wonder like, and it's not as huge of a deal for like the kind of political policy oriented discussions that we're having but you do miss that kind of personal connection yeah yeah i agree with that i've tried my hardest to stick with only in-person mm-hmm. interviews but the but i lack the video mm-hmm. the video is very complex to do yeah i looked into it because i you know before covid spiked i had I had prepped all this equipment i had bought some microphones and uh some tripods and had like my own little mobile recording studio essentially um and was all ready to do that. And then I started thinking about video and I spent like five, 10 minutes on Google, just trying to figure out like, how do you sync this up? And all these answers just like, no, I'm not, it's too I'm not much. messing with it. This is, this is ridiculous. Now, um, do you, are you a fan of podcasts? Do you listen to a lot of podcasts? I listen to a ton of podcasts. My, my work is very, um, not all the time, but a good portion of my work is this kind of very routine, like numbers oriented, not not quite data entry, but like drawing things out in CAD is the program we use. And and so while, while I'm doing this like line work, drawing out this site plan, um, I'll listen to just podcasts on end, tons of them. What podcasts are you, are you listening to? Oh man, it's all over the place. Um, I started listening to a lot of... Um, 99% Invisible is one of my favorites. It's it's very much like kind of a, it's not all about urban planning, but they do a lot of urban planning type podcasts, and that's a real passion of mine. Um, Radio Lab is really good. Um, 
and what else? I listen to a lot of Catholic podcasts. I'm Catholic, so that takes up a good bit of my time. What's a good Catholic podcast? Um, so there's one going on right now that's actually super popular. Father Mike Schmitz is doing a Bible in a Year podcast. Oh, cool. And so he's broken... I guess he didn't write the Bible plan, but he's taking somebody's reading plan for the Bible, and he reads each passage, and so it's like three different passages every day. Um, and then he spends about 10 minutes explaining kind of the context. And that was the really important part for me because I've never been good about reading reading the Bible on my own. Every time I open it, I'm like, okay, I read it. What does this mean? I have no idea. Okay, I'll close it and you know think about it later. And so having that context has really uh, opened my eyes to like, what is the bigger picture here? How does it all fit together? And it's, it's a really good podcast and that, it's actually doing really well on the charts right now, which is really interesting. Is, is that, um, does it come out every day? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Every morning. I don't know exactly what time, but yeah, every morning. And they're about 20 minutes. They're not very long. So I've been listening to that. Um, have, to have you, um, have you always been Catholic? Mm-hmm. Were you raised yeah, Catholic? Yeah, I grew up Catholic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of time grew up on Signal Mountain. There's a parish up there and now we go to the parish downtown, which even if you're not Catholic, like drop by and take a look in after COVID, of course, and everything opens up, but it's, it's beautiful. Like it's, it's one of the most beautiful churches. So oh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't been in there. I'd like to take a they, look. They do the occasional, um, musical event. So they've had a, a choir come in and do some chant. They had a organ recital, um, and all of this was before COVID, but hopefully they'll pick it back up once things calm down. Um, and all those events are open to the public and they do them. They were doing them once, I want to say like once every other month, they would do one of those public events. And it's a really cool opportunity to just like go in, look at the architecture. Uh, it's one of the oldest churches in the city. It was built in the 1800s. And it's just, it's gorgeous. Um, so does that mean it survived the the early Chattanooga floods we had? Um, when the whole city was, do you know any I guess that so. history? I don't know much about that history, but it does make sense that it would have survived that. It's over near the dome building mm-hmm. and that's kind of higher up. Oh, it's not near. It's not in West. I was thinking of West village. Isn't there a, there is a church over there. That's, that's uh, Episcopalian. Okay. Okay. I was thinking the wrong. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah it's high on the hill. Okay. Yeah. So it's a little bit higher up. So I think it, it moved through that. Um, it did one of the towers. It used to have two main towers and one of them, I think burned down. Maybe I can't remember exactly what happened to it. So now it's just got the one tower on the side. It's a little lopsided. Um, so I was also raised, uh, I was homeschooled until fourth mm-hmm. grade. And, um, do you want to tell, um, tell me, describe what your homeschool experience was like? Was it, uh, overall positive or, Yeah, I really liked it. It worked very well for me. I'm a naturally pretty introverted person, very bookish. Uh, You know, one of my funny memories is I was, it was like right around the time, I'm trying to remember what book I was reading, the fifth Harry Potter book. And my mom got sick of me sitting inside reading all day. And so she told me, you need to go outside and get some fresh air. And so I picked up my book and I picked up my pillow and I took him outside and I set up in the front yard next to a tree and kept reading. Um, so homeschooling fit me really well. Uh, my mom would, would give me some homework and, 
you know, tell me to read this chapter in this book and, and do this worksheet. And she'd spend a little bit of time on instruction, especially if I was struggling with something. Um, but I, I, it was very self-directed. I think that was really good for me because it allowed me to kind of pursue whatever I was interested in a little bit more. I was a little bit more flexible. Um, so I, I loved it. And my mom did a great job, you know, making sure because the, the biggest issue with homeschooling, I think, is is socialization. Yeah, it's sometimes hard to find that. And so she made sure I was involved in all these different programs. There's a homeschool group up on Signal Mountain and we would do, you know, parties and events. And we did, um, we did like Shakespeare read throughs, uh, as a big group. So we each like, we didn't act it out necessarily, but each person had their part and we read through different Shakespeare plays. And, you know, so she made sure that I, I got to know other people, which is important because that's one of the big kind of iffy spots when it comes to homeschooling you're either really good at it or you end up kind of isolated what was the transit the uh, transition like going to uh from homeschool to uh, uh a different school it was good so so middle school seventh and eighth grade uh i was part of this program called knox academy and i don't think it's around anymore but it was a, a classical education co-op and so we would go to class it was a very small group of people maybe a dozen kids and we would go to class once a week and we would learn latin literature social studies and critical thinking so we had four classes and they would give us our teachers would give us homework for the whole week and so it'd be like four days worth of homework and reading and then you'd come back the next week and have more instruction and that provided a really good transition for me so it was like I was getting a little bit of classroom time, a little bit of that more structured environment. And then by the time I went to Macaulay in ninth grade, I was still pretty socially awkward and like homeschool culture is still like very different. And so like that took a little bit of transition, but it wasn't, you know, deer in the headlights or anything like that. And now do you still know Latin? I can sort of read it. I I could not give you like if you asked me to translate something, I couldn't do it. Uh, my grammar is, is terrible, but I, if you show me some Latin and ask me like, what does this say? I can mumble my way through it usually. Now Latin is where, um, if I understand correctly, don't we get a lot of our root words from? Yeah. A ton of root words. Does that, is you find that helpful in, uh, everyday, uh, kind it can of be. understanding yeah. words better? Yeah. And also like Spanish, uh, is a romance language. So it's, got its roots in Latin. Um, so I can pick up words here and there and again, like kind of jumble my way through and get a you know a rough idea of what it says. If somebody's speaking it, I have no idea cause they all, you know, speak so fast, but, right. uh, yeah, it's been helpful. Mm-hmm. Have, have you ever traveled overseas? I have, I, I'm ashamed to say I don't know Spanish, even though my, my grandmother's from Peru mm-hmm. and her family is all still in Peru. And so I, we took a family vacation there when I was in like eighth grade, maybe we spent two or three weeks down there and it was gorgeous. Um, went to Cusco and Machu Picchu and the sacred Valley. And it was just, just absolutely beautiful. And then, uh, I also have family on my dad's side in Ireland so I've, I went there with my cousin around that same time, like seventh or eighth grade. And then I, I also studied abroad in Edinburgh 
in college for a semester and that was fantastic yeah would you recommend that to any youngster out there if you can swing it definitely yeah 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 it worked out for me like sometimes it costs a bunch of money and it worked out for me that it ended up being like the same amount as it would have been to stay at vandy that summer or that semester um so it can be hard to like afford it but if if you can swing it definitely definitely do it was that some kind of program or was it through your school, I'm assuming? Yeah, that- Vandy has a pretty solid study abroad program. They partner with a bunch of different a bunch of different universities and so they made the process pretty easy. And I, I know some universities have more connections than others, but you know, any any good sized university probably has a good study abroad program attached and they can help you out. It was just super cool, like especially at the University of Edinburgh. Edinburgh is just this beautiful old city and you could walk everywhere. The campus was all built in like, I took a history of architecture course while I was there. And some of the buildings that we studied were on campus. Just like, oh yeah, this was, you know, made by some famous British architect. No big deal. It's just the building that we study in. Yeah. This is crazy. Yeah, a little surreal. Yeah, it was was very surreal. It's a beautiful, beautiful city. Have you ever been um, able to go to Rome? No, I still want to go to Rome badly. As yeah. a Catholic, I feel like yeah. you know, make the pilgrimage. Got to make the pilgrimage. Yeah, go see, go see the Vatican and all that. I haven't been yet. No, okay. So you you're into urban planning. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think Chattanooga is doing with our urban planning? And yeah, let's talk about it. Man, I could get myself in trouble here if I'm not careful. <laughs> Well, they're just your ideas. They're um, not uh, law. So so I guess the basis for, for how I got in, into urban planning just as kind of my own hobby is I took a couple classes. One of my civil engineering professors at Vandy was somewhat into urban planning and a lot. She was more like transportation oriented, um, but did some assigned reading, a couple of blog posts, things like that. And it really got me interested. And I found this blog called Strong Towns. And he's got a book now, um, again, also called Strong Towns. And they have a podcast that I listen to all the time. Uh, and, And his big thing is like the whole suburban development pattern where we build miles and miles of roads and then we build a cul-de-sac and then we build a dozen houses around it. Um, is not really sustainable. You, you're building all this road, and then if you if you do the breakdown between like how much are those families paying in property taxes versus how much it costs to maintain those roads and pipes and sidewalks and all that, it doesn't pan out. And so the only way to keep improving is to keep annexing more property. It's like a shell game, mm-hmm. essentially, where you're like taking money from this part of town and you're using it to maintain this part of town. But then that first part of town starts to decline, and so you have to take money from somewhere else, and you're just constantly trying to keep up. And, and eventually, you know, you can't keep up. Um, and so I think, I think Chattanooga's done a really good job of kind of returning to its, its urban roots and really focusing on the downtown. A lot of people get upset because, like, we're focusing so much on the downtown, people kind of on the outskirts feel like they're being neglected. And there is some neglect kind of in the other districts, for sure, especially when it comes to things like sidewalks and, you know, simple, simple stuff like paving roads and making sure your sidewalks are intact. But I do think there's a lot to be said from, like, a return on investment standpoint. If you have a good downtown you know, that's where your offices are going to be. That's where your cultural centers are going to be. That's what makes a city a city. 
if you don't have a good urban core, you're not really a city, essentially. And so I think I think Chattanooga has been doing a better job, like making sure we focus on renewing our downtown, especially, I mean, the riverfront is what really kicked that all off back in like the 80s is when they started planning that and when they built the aquarium and they started building the river walk and started saying like, hey, downtown is actually a nice place to be. If we if we make it a nice place, it'll be a nice place. And And so I think that's been really helpful for the city and I think, you know, it's something that can continue. Um, there's definitely a lot of problems to work through, but I think there's a lot of potential. How come the downtown area has a lot of vacant commercial real estate and it's hard for restaurants to stay open in there? And what what are some of your thoughts on that from, a, from you know, an urban yeah, planning I mean, standpoint? Yeah, I mean, and again, I'm not an expert. I just read a lot of stuff, a lot of blogs, a lot of books. Um, I, I would say part of it is probably that, you know, maybe some of the rents might be a little overinflated. Um, a lot of the rent is driven not necessarily by like, not necessarily driven by the local market, but more driven by like if some developer from, you know, New York comes and buys a building, they're looking for an alternative to the stock market, essentially. You know, they're not looking to make Chattanooga a better place. They're looking for, okay, the stock market will give me 6%. What's something where I can get 7%? Or bonds are going to give me 1%. What's something where I can get 2%? And so the rents are driven a lot of times by that kind of return on investment mentality. Um, and so I think that that probably has something to do with it. I also think that, uh, there, you know, there might not be enough residential in our downtown core. Um, I really think mixed use development has a lot of potential to kind of revitalize these areas. And we've seen it, you know, in the Main Street area. We have a lot of residential next to a ton of restaurants that even, you know, some of them are struggling through COVID, but they all seem to be holding up better than some of the restaurants downtown or some of the restaurants kind of on the outskirts of town because people can walk. Yeah. They can go, you know, you order your, your pickup food and you go walk to the restaurant and you bring it back to your house and it's all COVID friendly, but all the places downtown, not many people live downtown. And so all those restaurants now, especially with COVID, their market has kind of dried up because no one wants to go downtown and find parking necessarily pick up their food and then go home. You know, if they're going to go downtown, they want an experience. And so I think, you know, moving towards more of a mixed use style of development where we allow office and residential and commercial and, you know, food industry to all kind of coexist and co-mingle, I think builds that kind of virtuous cycle where the residential then patronizes the commercial and the commercial expands and more people come and builds on itself. Yeah, I, just anecdotally, the South Side seems the probably the strongest economy in Chattanooga as far as the South downtown and mm-hmm. North Shore. That's yeah. just my kind of observation. No, I mean, and, just anecdotally, yeah, I agree. I mean, they seem to be doing really well, and I think it's because of that kind of symbiotic relationship yeah. between the residential and the commercial. And and up until, I don't know, a year ago, it was, it was free parking everywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you... What are your thoughts on paid parking? Is that helpful? Um, I mean, it, I don't know what the how much they're collecting with the, you know, parking, but it just 
it's a deterrent for me at least. I'm pretty lazy mm-hmm. and I don't like to have to fish around for coins and, and then it's right. stressful. How long am I staying here? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what are your thoughts on parking, pay parking? So, so I think uh, one thing that has really helped is the Park Mobile app. If you don't have it, like go get it. Everyone should go get that app because yeah. it'll tell you there's a spot here, there's a spot there. Oh, it actually tells you the spots. There's there's an option you can look wow. and it'll like tell you where the open spots are and how much they cost. Um, you can, if you're in a spot that allows you to renew parking, you can do it on your phone so you don't even have to, you know, if you're eating dinner and like you get a notification, oh, your parking's expired, you just hit the button and be like, renew my parking. And that's it. It's super easy. Um, so I think that's been a big step forward. Um, I think... Again, parking is another one of those things that is driven, again, a lot more by like return on investment than actual like what makes sense for this area. Uh, And so we get a lot of parking lots that are very poorly utilized because their rates are really high. Um, You know, the street parking, I think, is, is really well priced. I don't mind paying two bucks to park on the street if I can find a spot that is, you know, that can be hard. Um... But some of the, the surface lots are get pretty expensive. And if you look at them, they're almost never full unless it's like Riverbend or something. Um, and so I think kind of taking a look at our, our parking, and some, a lot of it's privately owned, so there's not much that you can do other than complain. Um, but especially for the publicly owned lots, like take a look and see like what is our utilization? Would we be better off lowering the price and getting more people and what would that do to like our maintenance costs and everything? Mm-hmm. And drive more business potentially to the area. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think especially in these areas like Southside where there's a lot of businesses very close to one another, you've got a potential to do like a park once, you know, you, you park in the garage or you park in the surface lot and then you go shopping here and then you go, you know, to Chattanooga whiskey and take a tour and then you go down the street and you, you know, eat dinner. Um, and then you go to another restaurant and get dessert and coffee. And you've, you've just made like five stops and you've only parked one time. You know, there's a lot more opportunity for that rather than, you know, if you go out to the mall, you park over here by the, I don't even know what's open anymore. I know Sears is closed, but that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. You know, you park by the Sears, you do your shopping, and then you drive to the other side of the mall to go get your pizza. And like you're, you're driving all around and you have to have parking for all of this to work. There always has to be an open parking spot or you just leave. Um, so I think, you know, we really need to look at like kind of right sizing our parking and making sure we're charging the right amounts. Um, but you know, I will say like the River City Company did a study and I don't know if it's still available online or not, but they did a study a while back showing like the actual amount of parking and the utilization of parking in the city. And I know people complain all the time that there's not enough parking. There is tons of parking in this city. And again, it's just like, do people know it's there? Yeah. And if they do know it's there, how expensive is it? And so I think we need to look at, you know, managing the parking that we do have better rather than building more. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm just wondering if, um, if the street parking was free, if that would help the downtown kind of. Well, I mean, there's a lot of vacant real estate down there right now. Mm-hmm. If that would help or not help. Yeah, and, and all of my interviews are starting to blend together. But I know one of the candidates mentioned that they would like to make parking. There's a, a an option in the Park Mobile app that the city can turn on to say like if you live in the city parking is free for an Mm -hmm. hour 
um, because it's run by your license plate. And so the city knows all the license plates of the residents and they can input that into the app. Um, I would love that. I think it'd be super cool. I yeah. would go downtown more for I, sure. Yes. And that's what I'm saying. Like I would go downtown. Right. That way. I, I think, I think if the city looked into something like that, they would probably end up making their money back in sales tax. I would think so. Um, you know, I haven't run the numbers on that or anything, but that's just kind of my gut feeling. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cool, uh, idea, you know, um, charge the tourists, but give the locals right. a break. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Um, what do you think about glass street? I think it's an area that has a ton of potential. It's got really good bones. Um, and again, this goes back to that kind of urban planning thing. Like a good urban planning form is a nice street grid that allows like, you know, if one street's closed, you can move on to another one and this kind of decentralized grid. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about like decentralized computing where you, you're using, you're using each individual computer, like as a part of a server and that insulates it from attacks because if one computer goes down, that's only 1% of the traffic. So it doesn't really matter. And it's the same thing with streets. If you've got one major street, like, you know, I live out off Brainerd road. If Brainerd road gets closed, it's a snarl. I mean, everything is backed up. It's a mess because it's the only way in and out of most of those neighborhoods, places like glass street, it's still got that old, older form where it's a grid. If one street gets closed, then you can just take another street. Um, it's got a lot of really, like, again, a lot of houses with really good bones. Um, and I think it just really comes down to, like, it's been a historically neglected neighborhood. Um, the infrastructure has not been kept up with super well, so there's potholes and streets are crumbling. There's, you know, the street trees have all kind of died and, and been taken down um and just you know the people who live there historically not just neglected in terms of like the maintenance of that area but like you know they've got to deal with systemic racism they've got to deal with all these issues that make it hard for them to build generational wealth and so it makes it harder for them to put the time and effort into their neighborhoods when they're just trying to get by um, and so I really like a lot of what I've seen going on over in that area. I'm, I haven't kept super close tabs on it, but I, I'm really hopeful for what can go, go on over there. Are you fil- familiar with Glass House Collective? I've heard of it and I know, uh, I have read a couple articles about it, but it's been a while. Yeah. I, I don't know much about it either. I know, but I know they are involved in trying to right. revitalize that area and that's kind of their main mission. Is, um, one of the other deterrents or not deterrents, but issues that it's so far away from the downtown. That might be part of it. Um, that might be part of it because it does depend, you know, where are the jobs? Can you get people to those jobs? I, I think there's really good potential for like a rapid transit line to go out that way. Because again, it's a, a large mass of people all in one area you get one bus line going through there and you know one or two bus lines that take people to where the jobs are um but i don't think it's far enough to really cause the problems that that they've had Mm -hmm. um it's still on this side of uh missionary ridge i mean where you live is on the other side exactly the the ridge has historically been kind of a big divide yeah there's i can't I can't remember which website it is, 
but I found a map a while back that showed the boundaries of Chattanooga and how they've expanded over time. And there's this big gap between when Chattanooga, you know, Chattanooga started in the downtown core and it was this very small, like 10 block area was the actual legal limits of the city. And then pretty quickly it expanded and expanded and it took over North Shore and it took over, you know, the South area where we are, um, pretty quickly took over all of that. And then it moved up towards the ridge and then just kind of froze for a little bit. And then we started expanding again, kind of in the post-World War II when the suburbs became a big thing. We started annexing, you know, vast areas of land after that. And But before then, the, the ridge kind of formed a natural barrier. And I think there's a lot of opportunities because too, the, the ridge, um, you know, we talk about transportation, like walking and biking are, are great forms of transportation if if you have the residential and the work. If they're close enough to each other yeah. that you can walk somewhere or you can bike somewhere, then, you know, it works out pretty well as long as those uses are close enough to one another. But having the ridge there, it's a pretty obvious barrier. Like no one wants to walk over Missionary Ridge or bike over Missionary Ridge. That's really tough. That's a workout. You know, workout and transit are not the same thing. If I'm going on a bike ride for a workout, <laughs> well said. Very different from going on a bike ride to get to work. Yep. So I think there's some natural advantages there where, you know, there could be some more multimodal transportation between Class Street and the rest of the city. Uh, let's talk about um, bike lanes and commuting and being able to walk or bike to mm-hmm. work. Um, do you think Chattanooga needs more bike lanes or sidewalks or river trail or? Absolutely needs more sidewalks. Uh, no questions about that. There are areas of town that just don't have sidewalks and sidewalks are important, not just for, you know, getting to one place or another, but like just going on a walk is really nice. Um, you know, when I, I lived in Nashville for a couple of years after I graduated and I, I was lucky to live in a, an older part of town uh, where there were sidewalks everywhere. It was a nice little street grid. I could just turn down, you know, take a random turn and just be like, what's down this street? What's down that street? And just take a nice little walk. And walking is really good exercise. Like it gets underrated because it's, you know, very low intensity. But there's tons of studies that have been done. It's just like walking is just really good for you. Yeah, just moving in general. Exactly. It's, it's, it's really bad to sit all day long at a desk and look at a computer yeah. screen. Our, our bodies aren't made for that. And so if you look like if you're in a neighborhood like that, where it's this nice dense street grid with sidewalks, there's m- endless opportunities to go on a walk and not just go on a walk, but go on a different walk every day. But if you're in the suburbs and you have this kind of, uh, you know, like stem and branch road system where it's like there's one main it's one road, way in one way out and then you've got all these branches coming off of it you can walk down your neighborhood and then you get to the main street and you feel kind of unsafe because sidewalks right next to these cars going 50 miles an hour and it's just like this isn't any fun so i'm just going to walk back to my house so if you do go for a walk you're taking the same walk every day and it gets really boring um So even just like not even from a transportation perspective, but just from like a mental and physical health perspective, I think sidewalks are super important. Um, And I think they just make nicer places. I think they add to property values. People, you know, people want to see their property values go up. The city gets more property taxes if their property values go up. So I, I would love to see a study on like for every foot of sidewalk, 
what's the long-term benefit, mm-hmm. you know, in numbers. Um, you know, I'm, I'm biased, obviously, but I'd be willing to bet that it's a good return on investment. Now, now does your neighborhood have sidewalks? Mine doesn't. Yeah. Okay. It drives, so yours... it drives us crazy. Right. We're right off this road. We're on a, on a short dead end road right off this big winding street that is in theory it's a residential street but people fly down cut through it yeah yeah um it connects brainerd and shaliford it's one of the main connectors between the two and so people just fly through there it's impossible to take a walk yeah um and so i think sidewalks super important and the city has done a good job you know the new subdivision regulations require whenever you put in a subdivision you have to put in sidewalks okay and that's been around for i don't know maybe a decade now and so all these newer subdivisions they have sidewalks you still do run into that problem of like where do your sidewalks go do they actually connect to anything um that's you know its own issue but at least they're there um but I think it is important to look at like connectivity, especially if you've got this system of dead end roads. You could have two houses that are literally right behind each other. But if you want to walk from one to the other, especially if there's a fence in the backyard, you have to walk two miles because you have to go down one street and all the way around and back to the other street, even though they're in your backyard. Especially if you're like trying to get to a park that's on, you know, maybe it's a quarter mile away, but you have to walk three miles to get to it. So I think being more creative about our, our connectivity, even if you're on a dead end street, even if you don't want cars driving through you your neighborhood, you can still have a, pass still have a sidewalk yeah. connection and let people get to that park that's on the other side of town. Um, so yeah, I'm big fan of sidewalks. I think they should be everywhere. Every street should have them. I think they should be well protected so that you feel safe. Again, like Brainerd Road has, some sections have good sidewalks but they're right next to the road and they don't feel safe. They're yeah. not fun. Um, and, and that's a bad one to ride your bike down too. Terrible one to ride your bike down. For some reason, there is a Shero, which is a, a marking. You've, you've probably seen them around. It's, it's a little bike symbol and oh, it's got sure. two arrows on it. And it just means share the road. Like okay. vehicles are supposed to share the road with cyclists. And I think those are good for like 20 or 30 mile per hour roads. If the vehicles are driving slowly enough that a a cyclist can come in and kind of keep the pace. Sure. So like in areas like the South side, like I think that works fine. Sharrows are fine on a road like Brainerd where people are going 45 miles an hour. No one in their right mind would ever try and share a lane with a car going 45 miles an hour. Uh, It's just dangerous. And so it's not a fun, you know, the infrastructure is quote unquote, there right but it's it's just a marking on pavement and people mostly ignore it i've rode my bike down that exact road and it's not fun yeah it's it's scary it's very scary um and i try and ride my bike to run errands whenever i can you know but i i really do my best to stay on the back roads whenever possible what do you think about the bike lanes they did on broad street it goes sidewalk bike lane parking driving i've heard a lot of complaints about like the visibility mm-hmm. you know uh if you've you, you've got the travel lane and then you've got the parking and then you've got the bike lane and so the the parking blocks your view mm-hmm. of the cyclist so if somebody's coming in and they're turning into a driveway they can't see the cyclist that's driving on the other side of those parked cars and it creates a lot of issues um and you know i've read some good studies like some of, of cyclists talking about the broad street 
corridor and saying like this was just not well designed yeah uh, and so it's not just like, it's not just people who are mad because now there's pavement that's being used for a bike lane because there are people that just don't like bike lanes, but it's not just those people that are mad about broad street. The cyclists themselves cyclists, yeah. are, are actually not super jazzed about I, it. I'm a cyclist myself mm-hmm. and, um, I don't even use it. Yeah. I just rip down the street broad, you know, with the traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it is and a broad's slow, pretty slow moving. It's tw- and you know, a, a cyclist, uh, 17 miles an hour through town is easy um and it's actually hard to maintain that speed when you're swerving in and out Mm because that bike lane isn't even straight right every intersection zigs and zags yeah uh so yeah and i think you know in general i i really like bike lanes in general and i think there's a lot of opportunities here in town to kind of expand that network because people complain like oh no one uses the bike lanes and I think part of the reason for that is we haven't really reached a critical mass yet. Um, the blog I was talking about earlier, Strong Towns, they have mm-hmm. a, a way of, of describing this problem where it's like, if you're complaining because nobody is using, they'll say like, no one rides their bike down, let's just say Main Street. Let's say no one rides their bike down Main Street. So why are we putting a bike lane down Main Street for these non-existent cyclists? And the way Strong Towns puts it is they say, that's like complaining about, why is no one crossing this crocodile infested river? Why would we ever build a bridge across it? It's like, well, no one's riding their, their bike down main street. Cause it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. If you put in a bike lane, people might actually ride their bike if there's a place to go. So you don't want a bike lane that just runs up and down main street, but nowhere else you have to have connectivity to other parts of the bike network. And I think the city is slowly building up to that. There's a, a link somewhere on the city website that shows like the planned you know, grand scheme for where all the bike lanes are going to go. And I think it's pretty good. I think it's a good interconnected network. I didn't know about that. That allows you to get from point A to point B. And I I can't remember exactly where it is, but just search like Chattanooga bike lane map or something like that. It'll probably come up in the first couple of hits. Well, I really like what they did to MLK Street. Yeah, and, and I, I think that helped MLK. I think they're extending it. Well, I heard they're supposed to go all the way to the tunnel. Yeah, which I think would be great. Yeah. And I think there's a good opportunity there because like MLK is this wonderful thoroughfare with this beautiful history. And I think you're about to kind of say the same thing, but Mm -hmm. like it's really helped the area. I think it's helped the businesses. Exactly. People feel comfortable walking on the sidewalk, biking to their business, going, you know, there's residential right behind it. So they feel comfortable getting on their bike and going to the bar to grab a bite to eat, going to the barbershop, whatever. They can do that and feel safe. And I think extending that can really help that whole stretch. And I think there's good opportunity there too, because we have these big major roads that are all parallel to one another. Yeah, right next to it. So you've got Macaulay, you've got MLK, and you've got Main Street. And they're all, before they changed MLK, they were all four lanes. And there's no reason that we need three four-lane roads all going the same direction, the same place. I think, you know, doing that MLK road diet on at least one of those streets makes sense. I mean, it allows for more people to get where they're going without having to get in a car. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't know what they're going to do once they hit the tunnel, because have you ever tried pushing a bike on that sidewalk through the tunnel? It's a tiny sidewalk. Yeah. And, and on the other side, I know, cause I mean, on the other side of the tunnel is Brainerd road. And if, if they tried to do a lane diet in Brainerd road, people would throw a fit. Yeah. It's always busy. It is very busy. 
is is the problem the access it's not quite close enough to 75 or the it's not 75 right there's 24 the highway no i think it's people getting off 75 because that's their exit i mean if, like me i live there and so i get off 75 i get on brainerd road and then i make my turn and so it's all of these kind of more auto oriented businesses so mm-hmm. you've got like the walmart you've got the uh a couple of different hardware stores you've got a few strip malls um None of the development is really oriented towards pedestrians or cyclists. And so you end up with a lot of traffic, just people going through, people trying to get home, people going to Walmart. Um, It's just a lot of traffic. And and I don't think, I don't think a lane diet would really help very much there. It's just so much traffic and it's, everything is spread so far apart. That's, these, these conversations of like transportation and land use are very interconnected. I think you need a certain kind of density to, to have a functioning, you know, pedestrian network or bike network. Um, so like the houses here on the south side or the houses over in Highland Park or St. Elmo, they're all in these narrow lots. They're like 40, 50 feet wide. You've got all these houses close together and they're nice houses. Like there's some big houses in this area that are just as big as anything out in the suburbs, but the yard is a lot smaller. And so to get from my house to my neighbor's house is much shorter. To get from my house to the restaurant is a much shorter distance. But if you've got these buildings, like out on Brainerd, you've got a building, and then you have a huge parking lot. And then you've got another building and a huge parking lot. And so you're just driving and driving and driving, and you pass like four buildings in the space that downtown, you could get through the entirety of downtown (laughs) in the same amount of time yeah, and pass, you know, every kind of store and restaurant and condo imaginable. And so you need kind of this land, you need the land use to complement the transportation network. Is, is there a solution for Brainerd road? Um, add just add another lane or is it just kind of built and that's what we have? <laughs> so there's a thing when you add another lane called induced demand Mm-hmm. And so when you add another lane, people say, hey, look, this brand new lane. I was thinking that Brainerd was too crowded, so I didn't want to buy a house off of Brainerd Road. Now they've added this lane, I'm going to buy a new house off of Brainerd Road. And so you get all this new development, you get all these new stores, and all of a sudden that new lane is now full of just as many cars as the other lanes that were already there. Uh, and there's been a lot of study on this. If you just look up induced traffic demand i mean it's interesting well documented well we we just added a whole another third lane all the way through downtown on uh on 27 27 yeah yeah Yeah. i'm curious to see how that'll work um in some cases like adding a new lane can be merited but i think on brainerd it would just kind of compound the problems that are there Mm -hmm. and i think it's another one of those things that goes back to that kind of you know what is your land use you know, if we're looking through blinders, if we're looking at the street, that's a pretty narrow way of looking at things. You have to look at like, what is the land use um, out in Brainerd? In that zone, you can only build commercial buildings on Brainerd. And then when you build commercial buildings, you have a minimum amount of parking that you have to build. And that minimum amount of parking has to have a detention basin for all the stormwater to make sure that you don't flood storm pipes uh so basically what happens with those is like when it rains all the excess water goes into the catch basin and into this detention pond and then it's released slowly 
so that it doesn't overwhelm the streams downstream of it. And that's, I mean, that's what I spend most of my day doing is designing those ponds and, and things like for work. Is there any um, progressive outside the box thinking or towns where they're using parking lots that are permeable so they can avoid that issue? Yeah, that, so first of all, that only takes care of a certain amount of space. Like you, each parking lot is, each parking space is a little bit less than 2,000 square feet. Uh, it's like 1,600, I want to say. For a square feet for one parking space? One parking space? spot. Is, that seems no, sorry. incorrect. 17 or so. Sorry, you know, did I say 2,000? Yeah, that's like a small uh, house. 200. Okay. Uh, it, each one is 9 by 18. Okay. So each one is like the size of a bedroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and the amount of space you need for your detention pond per each parking space, compared to the parking space itself, it's not that much. Okay. I'm just, it's just an example of like how the land adds up. If you build this building and all of a sudden you need 100 parking spaces and then you'll also need a detention pond on top of that, you know, that's a lot of space that you then have to drive past. Yeah. Whereas if you build something with five parking spaces that you can also, you know, you build your housing right here and then right next to it you have a small grocery store that only needs 50 parking spaces instead of 100, uh, then you you shrink that area down a little bit. And so there there is permeable pavement. Um, just in my own experience, working with contractors, they hate it because it's really difficult to install. It's almost impossible to maintain. It's It can be a real mess. Um, and it's generally more trouble than it's worth. Is the solution to a lot of these problems, um, oh, getting moving in the future towards less vehicles? That is my personal long-term preference, um, but I think even in, even beyond that, I don't think we necessarily need less vehicles so much as we need to be a little more uh, thoughtful about how much preference we're giving to those vehicles. Especially, you know, parking is a great example. So, like, when you build a commercial development, I don't know what the current city code is, but, you know, some places require four parking spaces for every thousand square feet. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of this is driven by, by tenants too. So like Walmart has their own parking requirements. No matter what the city says, Walmart they, wants this number of parking spaces. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time, if you drive past any Walmart in town, there's maybe two days a year where the parking lot is full. I don't know if I've ever seen it full. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe on Black Friday. Yeah. And that's a maybe. I've seen pictures of, you know, there's a whole blog that runs pictures of, of Black Friday parking lots just yeah. to show, like, even today, on the most consumerist day of the year, yeah, we still the parking lot's still not yeah. full. And so we have way more parking than we need in a lot of these cases. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunity just, like, you know, a lot of cities are starting to explore the idea of not requiring parking. Not to say that there is no parking, but the city doesn't tell you how much parking to provide. Interesting. So the developer then needs to decide how much parking they think they need. And the developer now has this incentive to say like, okay, I know that my clients want parking. Parking is a very important part of this development because the people who live here want it or the people who work here want it. At the same time, every parking spot costs me $10,000. Yeah. So there's a little more incentive to balance that equation and say like, 
how much parking do I actually need and how much do I actually want to pay for? And it kind of lets the market work itself out. What's Walmart's incentive to not even care and just overbuild on their parking lot? Um, I think in, my, in a lot of cases, it's a holdover from uh, pre-internet commerce. Okay. I think internet commerce has cut down a lot on parking. So, you know, people go to Amazon and have the package delivered to them rather than going to Walmart and picking it up. So I think, you know, some of these numbers are holdovers from when everything was parking driven. And they haven't quite yet adjusted, caught up up to... I think they probably will. I mean, Walmart's usually been really good about, you know, being efficient. Yeah. You know. Yeah, uh, they were the the ones that started it. I, I think Walmart got really popular because of their inventory. They had the best invent- tracking inventory. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they could have all these rollbacks because they knew exactly how many items they had per store right. and exactly yeah. what they paid for. It. Yeah. They had and, good books. And they've they've done a really good job. Like They've adopted solar. They've adopted uh, skylights. Like Every Walmart has tons of skylights to the point where 50% of your lighting is natural. Um, and they're, they're doing these things not because, you know, they're virtuous, but because it makes financial sense. Mm-hmm. If we can, we have this gigantic roof, why not put a bunch of solar panels on top of it and, you know, free energy, great. Uh, you know, so things like that. So I don't think it's going to take Walmart and these other big companies very long to figure out, you know, we have too much parking. We don't need to keep requiring this much parking. But that only happens for the new Walmarts when they build a new one. But what do we do with all the old ones? And that's a big issue, like, people are still trying to figure out. Um, well, there's the new publics going in, in St. Elmo. Are you familiar with this project? Yeah, I've been following that drama. And yeah, that is drama for sure. Um, but that's a small lot. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the, the whole, the whole deal. Should they be allowed to build there? What are your thoughts on the St. Elmo publics? I mean, I think it needs a grocery store in that area for sure. Um, there's, there's the food city like in San Elmo proper, Mm -hmm. but the area kind of adjacent to that, like Alton park and the areas adjacent to that don't really have a grocery store that Mm -hmm. they can easily access. So I think improving access in that area is very important. So I think in general, it's great that they're building a Publix there. And even all of, I'm just going to add, um, uh, lookout Valley. Right, going. There's a lot of traffic on Cummins Highway right there, and yep. if if they don't, if they can just hop off the road there instead of go through about two traffic lights through a one lane road through the train tunnel, that's gonna to help get to, the to get to the yeah. food city. Yeah, yeah. So I think it'll help. I think it's it's generally a good idea. Um, you know, I know there was the main issue is like, do we put our parking lot in the front like we always do, or do we put it in the back like? We want like this, like the city wants them to put it in the back, I think, or the neighbors want them to put it in the back so mm-hmm. that they don't have to see this big, ugly parking lot. And then Publix, it wants to do things the way they've always done them and put the parking lot in the front. Um, at the end of the day, I think the zoning code in that area is actually pretty good and like progressive and, and takes care of a lot of those problems. So I'm not necessarily worried about it. We'll see how it ends up. When they actually build it, uh, I'm sure, you know, there will probably be things that they could have done better. But in general, I think having a grocery store there is a really good thing. And they're building another one just down uh, on Broad Street, um, Food City, on the corner of like Broad and Main. Now, I've read about that. Yeah. And I didn't know if they, 
they were talking about it. So is it final now? They they got approved or I think so. They're pulling the I, I trigger. Saw some, I saw something in the Chattanooga about them building that. So I th- I think it's approved and I think it's and a it's done a deal. it's actually a large piece of property. It's a pretty large piece of property. Yeah, right now it's the parking lot for the uh, like. Budweiser distribution. And it has some train tracks running through it that yeah. they might take out. I don't think they're taking them oh, out. Really? The last site plan I saw still has the train tracks going through there. Was there um, a parking garage with that plan? Not that I saw, but the store itself, I think, is going to be two stories. Okay. Yes. Which I actually really like. I uh, When I was in Nashville, we lived right down the street from a two-story food city. And the way they did it was like all the food and stuff was on the bottom and then all the, you know, paper plates and, Interesting. Uh, you know, the toiletries and the toothpaste and the, and thank the, you the gift cards and, and all that the stuff. Hot air balloons. That was all upstairs because sometimes you just need to go in and you need to get your salad for dinner and you need to go. So all the food was downstairs because that's what most people are there for. And then all the dry goods were upstairs. Was that Food City good quality as far as I really liked and- it. Yeah, they've got good brands and stuff. I, I really enjoyed it. Um and I, I liked that kind of two-story. I thought it was really efficient, and it did. They did a good job. And I think they're doing something very similar at this this site and in then Chattanooga. Have you read or heard about a Gordon Food Service? I just read also? about that. Yeah, um, over like across from Mad Priest. Yeah, from the Cassius Bakery. Yeah. Yeah, and the new Flame and Rooster. Yep. Um, that's great. I mean, three three new grocery stores coming in on Broad Street, all within what. Yeah two miles yeah and i think it's it's very important because and i hope that grocery stores start looking at expanding more towards like highland park and glass street because those are food deserts like actual you know scientifically defined as food deserts because you know it's where people are buying food from a from a gas like your gas gas station is essentially you know the only place to buy milk and eggs within miles and that's just not cheap and it's expensive at it's gas expensive station. and if you don't have a car because a car is also expensive you know i read a, an article today that said the average amount people are spending on their cars per month is 800 dollars. 800 when you add the... between your car payment your car insurance and your gas wow and your maintenance so you add all that together and, and the average american is spending like 770 dollars per month on their car so a car is expensive and obviously, I mean, I mean, I know you can go out and buy an old beater for a thousand dollars, but then maintenance on that is really expensive. So, like, so for people who cannot afford a car, living in a food desert is really difficult. You have to wait an hour to get on the bus, go to your grocery shopping, take all your groceries home on the bus, or you go buy the grocery store milk for twice as much as yep. you would pay in the grocery store. So, I mean, it's a really, it's a real barrier to, you know, financial stability. Uh, you know, people say just like hoist yourself up by your bootstraps or whatever, but, and there's, you know, a lot to be said for that. Like hard work is important, but at the same time, it's really hard to be poor. And there's a lot of costs associated with being poor that people don't think about. Oh yeah. And you get pulled over more and, uh, with a beater car and yeah, yeah. I mean, your taillight probably goes out more often and you, yeah. you know, it's probably harder to pass your emissions test and all this oh, stuff. Oh jeez, the mission test. Yeah. I had, I mean, I did cheat my way through that for the last <laughs> couple of years. I, I have a diesel Volkswagen, you know, Ooh, with a, yeah. uh, with a, um, forget but there's some kind of mod that was done on it right so the emissions the check engine's light is on yeah. and 
that's a poor tax in my opinion. And, and <laughs> it is. I mean, it definitely it's, it's hits poor, poor people a lot harder. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a lot of that kind of stuff where it's like most people don't think about it cause they never have to deal with it. But right. like a lot of, you know, financially prudent decisions, you have to have a certain amount of money before you can take advantage of it. So like before you, uh, start buying your food in bulk, you have to have enough money to buy your food in bulk. Oh, if sure. you've only got $20 for groceries for the week, you can't buy in bulk unless you are just buying rice. I can buy a 50 pound bag of rice for 20 bucks, but like, that's just rice. Well, I need milk. I need eggs. And I that goes juice. back to the car. I mean, if you're buying a $5,000 car, if you can pay in cash, you pay 5,000. Right. But if you have to buy a used car from, for 5,000 in payments, now you're paying eight Six, grand. Seven, yeah. yeah. Depends on your yeah. interest rate. And it's just all, it just all adds up. It mm-hmm. is very difficult being poor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm hoping that this whole grocery store thing that starts be a expanding start. yeah. into those food deserts, I think. And there is, there's a co-op, I think, going in. They, they announced something over in the Highland Park area. Uh, I really need to go back and look that up. I had it saved somewhere. Is it already open? And is it right next to Tennessee Temple? It is in that area. I don't know if it's already open. Okay. But that's the one I'm I, talking about over by I Temple. I think it's open. Okay, cool. Yeah. I think that'll be a big help. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't been in it, but uh, I was riding my bike and I saw that. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, that'll be really cool. Um, What do you think about, we're talking about traffic a lot, which is interesting. What do you think about a 24, Highway 24 bypass so they don't have to deal with the ridge cut? Have you ever um, looked into that at all? Uh, I have dreamed about it a few times and like pulled up Google Maps and looked like, how could this happen? And it's. It's really hard because you've got Lookout Mountain kind of bisecting yep. the the Georgia-Alabama state line. And so you can't go south around the city because Lookout Mountain is right in your way. Uh, if you go north, then you start running into the Cumberland Plateau. Um, well, you can take that valley all the way up, but the next bridge to get over is uh, Dalton. Yeah. Yeah, so the natural ridge cuts are are very far out of the way. I think it might be, it would be possible to do a ridge cut north, but be really expensive. Mm-hmm. Be very very expensive. Yeah, I was just wondering if you've ever looked into that. Yeah, I've thought about it a little bit. I, I think I read an article way back in the day talking about it. Yeah, but I yeah. mean that, that that idea has been floating around for as long as I have been following any news. Which I mean, it's not long. I'm still pretty young, but. I I cannot remember a day not hearing about like the yeah. the imaginary I twenty four bypass. What about the imaginary bridge that goes one eleven over by uh, oh um, Harrison Bay? You know, I think that would be doable. Yeah, and I think that would actually be super helpful because there's not a lot of connections outside. Like once you get past the dam, yep, there's nothing. Yeah, and it's really hard if you are trying to get around that area. Mm-hmm. For yeah, for people that work in Cleveland and whatnot, mm-hmm. yeah, that'd be. That'd be nice. Um, what about a uh, river trail? I love the river trail and I'm glad. I mean, they're really, they keep expanding it all the time and I love it. It's great. I think it's, it's not only helpful for like, if you want to commute from like St. Elmo to downtown or from North shore to downtown, like it provides a nice safe access, but it's just fun. I mean, it's, that the that last uh, the three mile stretch from St. Elmo to um, OMLK that was so important mm-hmm. because 
there's no good way to get on a bike to St. Elmo except for the river trail. Yep. I mean, the next best is probably Market Street, I would say. But even yeah. then, it's not that great. Um, I think that one's super important. I'm really, the one I'm really holding my breath for is the North Chick connector. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge section of the North Chick, Chickamauga Greenway that ends. Where does it end? It ends like right across from. Are you talking about South Chick or North Chick? Sorry, South Chick. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So there's a South Chick Greenway that like... It ends... It ends kind of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And then there's still like three miles before you hit the dam. Right. And they... They have plans to extend it all the way to to the dam. And then even across one of the bridges, I think DuPont Bridge, they want to build like an accessory bridge that goes across and then connects to the North Chick Greenway, which I think would just be super cool to have like another... Because currently the only pedestrian access across river is uh the walnut street bridge Mm -hmm. so i think it'd be really cool to have one a little bit further east i agree um i've talked to some people about that and it comes down to that bridge was not engineered yeah to have bikes on it yeah or pedestrian traffic even though it's obviously strong enough and that that bridge doesn't get much traffic i mean you almost like you could take take a lane out but um there's been crazy ideas such as a hang a bridge below it Mm -hmm. um different ideas but uh i think the red tape is getting in the way of that one yeah i'm not i don't think it's going to happen anytime soon but i'm glad people are still talking about it and it doesn't seem like anybody's quite given up on it yet yeah i don't think so it's just a matter of time do you have any um hosting a a political podcast do you have any um political aspirations um you know i've thought about running for like city council or something eventually uh it's it's you know the city is really important to me. I love it here. I grew up, you know, not in the city, you know, proper, but close enough that I'm very attached to Chattanooga. And I think a natural part of that attachment is, you know, trying to build a stronger place. And I think the the, the most important thing that I can do now is is get people involved and get people educated about what's going on in the city and how they can vote and who they can vote for and, you know, just connecting people to resources. And maybe one day that'll turn into me running myself, but it's definitely not in the near term. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now I'm just more focused on, you know, getting people connected with the resources because I think that's where it starts. Uh, You know, I was looking today at like historic voter turnout and it's really weird because the the Chattanooga city elections are in March. Yeah. Nothing else is in March. It's not attached to the gubernatorial election. It's not attached to the national elections. And I think there's there's some good and some bad that comes with that. The good is that the city can kind of separate itself from all of the partisan crap that goes on in the national elections. Yeah. And, and sort of stand on its own as something like, this is for Chattanooga. And it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat or any other random party. You can come vote in this election and just not worry about any of that. Just think about Chattanooga. And so I think it insulates itself from those kind of broader, more heated debates. But at the same time, if you don't have those kind of big ticket items that you're voting on, turnout is abysmal. How? What is the turnout? Um, I was looking in my lifetime, voter turnout has never exceeded 35% in the city elections. Mm-hmm. And for comparison, the 2020 
presidential election had a voter turnout around 70 percent. Uh, and and 30, 35 percent is actually high for the local elections. I think two cycles ago it was 17 percent. 17 rings a bell. I think Monte told me that. 17 is the uh, Andy Burke's first term. Okay. Was a 17 percent turnout. And, and if you look at all this data, and again, this is another one of those things where I get, you know, super excited about like localism and what we can do on the local level, because all these issues are so rooted in, in the local government, um, how much one vote can make a difference. Uh, I was looking, you know, Andy Burke is kind of an exception to this rule because he won in, in pretty much a landslide both years. Um, but if you go back a couple cycles, uh, I think I wrote this down. Let me pull out my phone because I don't want to get this wrong. I'm pretty sure it was Ron Littlefield and Ann Coulter. Uh, and I don't know if it's the Ann Coulter or somebody else because this was about a decade ago. Uh, yeah, so in 2005, Ron Littlefield and Ann Coulter went into a runoff. Uh, it was a very crowded field. There were like six or seven people running. Uh, Ron Littlefield got 9,000 votes and Ann Coulter got 10,000 votes. And then they went into the runoff, and Ron won with 15,000 to Ann's 13,000. Wow. So that's 2,000 votes. That's 2.5% of registered Chattanooga voters. I mean, it's tiny margins in a lot of these races. And so it really speaks, you know, people complain, like, especially when you add the Electoral College into the mix, which is its own issue I don't really want to get into, but people feel like their vote doesn't really matter at the national level in a lot of cases. And then at the local level, when it actually does matter, a lot of people just don't vote. People don't vote. Some of that might be because from a marketing or advertising, um, it took me uh, quite some time to even find out that uh, March 2nd is the date. Exactly, the, yeah. The, it, it's, and I like what Tim Kelly did. He put it right on his sign. Mm-hmm. If you notice his sign, it says vote March 2nd. Yeah. You know? And I think that's a big part of it is just telling people when and where can I vote in the city elections. That's a big part of it. But also, I mean, so we're all caught up in these national issues. I think a lot of that is driven by money because the media companies see that like, hey, I can talk about national issues and I don't have to worry about these local issues. And they even buy like smaller local news stations and start running more national stories in the local news stations. And, you know, national politics is important for sure. And it gets eyeballs, you know, that's where the ad revenue is, you know, like you and me, we're talking about Chattanooga and I I don't know what your, your podcast numbers look like, but mine are very small and I don't expect them to ever get very big. I'm, I'm naturally limited to, you know, I think we have 117,000 registered voters. Yep. And if I got, you know, 20,000 listeners, I would be over the moon. Um, but there's not a lot of ad revenue in 20,000 listeners. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a, you know, for us, it's like a labor of love. This is just something we're interested in. Absolutely. And, and we think is important. Um, but if you want to make money, you have to talk about national issues. And so, you know, again, this just, just goes back to my mission, like get people involved. If something is important to you on, I guarantee you, if something is important to you politically, there is some part of that issue, no matter what it is, that is implemented at the local level. And if you vote at the local level, your voice is so much more powerful than it is at the national level. 
And so, you know, getting people in touch with their candidates, getting people, you know, telling people, go vote March 2nd, uh, register by February 1st is the deadline to register to vote. February 10th is the beginning of early voting and the deadline to register for an absentee ballot is February 23rd, I want to say. Is all that on your website? Yes. Excellent. Yes. I think I'm missing one of those dates on my website. I need to update it, but most of those dates are on the website. And then the website also links to the uh, Hamilton County Election Commission. And are you uh, a one-man show? Are you doing your own website? Do you have... uh... Yeah, so right now I'm doing my own website. I'm handling all the podcast stuff. My wife is much better at Instagram than I am and much more involved in it than I am. I had to get rid of it because it was there were a lot of problems in how I was using it. Um, and so she's running the Instagram page, which I'm really thankful for because I feel like there's a lot of people that are, are just on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Like they, they're not on Facebook. They're not on Twitter. Um, so yeah, we're on all the social media. So you have a Twitter too? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Everything, all the social media is at chat civics chat with two T's. Um, but yeah, it's it's mostly me, and then my wife is running the Instagram page, and I, I did the website. My wife has a journalism background, so she like did the copy editing for me, which is really nice because I'm terrible at grammar and, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we're just I designed like a free Google web page. Uh, Google has like a really easy web designer that's free, and they'll give you. The, the URL that they give you is really terrible. It's yeah. like sites.google.com slash view slash whatever your page right. is called. And so I ended up buying an actual domain name. It's chattanoogacivics.com. Um, and it was super cheap. I had no idea domain names were so, so cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, designed it all myself. Yeah, $8 or so. I, I edit everything. My videos and my uh, audio is all edited on open source software. It's all free. So trying to trying to keep the budget low, trying to keep the impact high. Yeah. Has it been fulfilling? It has been. It's been really cool, especially I feel like these interviews have really made it take off. Um, the past week, I've gotten way more hits, especially since I released the website. I think people were really looking for like one spot where they can go and say, who are all the people running? What are their websites? And then the way I've got it set up is like, it's their name their website. And if I've done an interview with them, it's, it's the link, oh, to, the link to that. Yeah. So it's super simple, very bare bones, but it's just like connect people. Yeah. Tell people who's everybody running, what district are they in? What's their name? How can I learn more about them? I love and that. eventually I'd like to expand into something like, you know, have kind of a crowdsourced, um, list of important issues. I think it's something I'd really like to try. This is kind of a big idea for after this election cycle because I'm just swamped right now. Uh, but but have like a crowdsourced list of issues and say what is important to Chattanoogans. And I've been trying to engage people uh, and and get ideas for like what what questions do you want me to ask. Um, but it's kind of a self-selective audience. I've been posting on like Reddit and Facebook and like that's a very self-selected audience of yeah. people who are seeing that. Um, because, you know, I have the questions that I want to ask, but I really want to make sure that I'm getting a representative view of what citizens want. And, and that applies to my interview style as well. Like I, I ask the question 
and I let the candidates answer. And if I have a follow-up question to like clarify something, I'll ask a follow-up question. But I, I really try not to inject my own views into these interviews. Uh, you know, some of it bleeds through. There's a lot of editorializing that happens, like even in how the question is worded can kind of twist how it gets answered. It's hard not to. It's, it, I, I, I do not think there is such a thing as unbiased reporting. Uh, no matter what you do, you're always going to have some kind of bias in how you ask the question or what questions are you asking. But I try and minimize that as much as possible. And I try and stay open with my listeners to say like, hey, what do you want to hear? What do you want me to ask these people? Because um, I really, I, I don't want this to be, you know, the Nathan show. I want it to be the candidates speaking for themselves on the issues that are important to them so that they can connect with the voters and the voters can say, hey, I like what this guy said. I don't like what this guy said. I'm going to vote for person A. Mm-hmm. And no one, no one had this. So that's why you, that's why you started. Right. Exactly. It's like, yeah, it's like if it already exists, that, that would have been helpful. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, there are good resources out there. I know like there's some radio shows that do a lot of interviews uh, with these candidates. I know there's some panels that get organized with a lot of these mm-hmm. candidates, but there's problems with all of these, you know, radio, nobody that I know listens to radio in my age group. Like same radio is just not a thing anymore, especially with COVID. No one's driving anywhere. So who listens to the radio? Uh, it's, you know, podcasts seem to be where people are listening the most. Um, so like while I applaud the work that these radio personalities are doing, they're not getting a full swath of Chattanoogans. And I'm not either, you know, it takes all types to kind of get people informed. Same thing with the newspapers. The newspapers can get expensive. Um, and you know, do you subscribe to times free press? I want to, I'm, I'm trying to save up. <laughs> and I know they've got the, uh, they have the paywall. They've got the paywall and they've got the, the promotion rate. So I should probably subscribe just, you know, to be better informed since I am, you know, hosting this show. But, uh, you How know, much is it? After the promotion runs out, it's like 30 something dollars a month. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it doesn't matter if you get the, the difference between the, the digital and the print is like $4 a month. It's not that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, they do great work, nothing against them, but like not a lot of people read the newspaper. And even if they do, it's hard to say like, oh, there was an interview with, uh, with Tim Kelly in last week's issue and now there's an issue a new issue with Monty Brule but I don't know what I did with my last issue so I can't sit down and compare the two so so having the website where you can sit down and you know listen to these two interviews back to back I think is hopefully going to be helpful to people yeah yeah that's great um you're doing great work I listen to a couple of yours um I like your style um good quality um you're doing a good job in working in the closet (laughs) (laughs) so yeah it's been fun do you have uh anything else you'd like to add or or let people know about you um i mean just you know get people involved tell your friends about the podcast if you're enjoying it um just make sure people know how important local elections are and that you can go out and vote march 2nd and that your vote really matters in a local election and whatever I can do to help people get more involved. Like if, if there is a need 
for information that I can be fulfilling, like let me know, contact me. It's all on the website, chattanoogacivics.com. If there's, there's some issue that you want addressed, like I'm, I'm happy to ask about it. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming over and uh, let me learn a little bit more about the guy behind (laughs) Chattanooga Civics. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you later. Thanks. And there you have it, folks. That is Nathan Bird. Check out his podcast, Chattanooga Civics, and specifically you can listen to his interviews with some of the mayoral candidates. And remember, voting is March 2nd, 2021. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends. Word of mouth is fantastic. And leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Bye.